Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come together. And we, we do have heavy souls. We do pray for our nation. We pray that uh, your will would be done, that your kingdom come. But we also pray for the restraint of evil in our nation. And we pray that we would be able to live under government and authority that would enable us to live peaceful lives, to be about your gospel. We pray that this would be done. I pray for today that you would help us to understand your word so that we may be content in the kingdom, that we may persevere to that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I just want to remind you where we left off last time. We were going through Joel in this battle. We've been in chapter 3 where, of course, God is going to be judging the nations that come against Israel. And if you remember last week, I talked about Phoenicia and Philistia. These were nations in the ninth century that were really powers that threatened the people of Judah in particular. And if you remember this slide, I just want to do a little review. I asked the question, why were they mentioned as the threat that God would deal with rather than the Assyrians and the Babylonians, which were known as the enemies of the north? The enemies of the north that God had prophesied he would remove at the end of Joel chapter 2. Well, I gave you three reasons why. Number one, we hypothesized these three things. Number one, it was the Philistines and Phoenicia committed evil against Israel in Joel's day, and God would reconcile this in the future day of the Lord. And I think we concluded that that's true. So there was a near-term threat that God is ultimately going to resolve in the far day of the Lord. That's the idea. And so that's the connection that we want to see often in the prophets. What confuses evangelicals as you read the prophets, whether they be the major or the minor prophets, is you'll see a blending of the near and the far. And so what happens is you say, well, you almost give up. You say, I can't figure out whether he's talking about the prophet's day or the future. Well, a lot of times he's blending it. Uh, Again, my favorite example is Isaiah 13. First 16 verses, roughly, of Isaiah 13, it's all about the future day of the Lord. And it's obvious. Why? Because it's a cataclysmic worldwide judgment. But then Isaiah 13, 17, all the way to the end of the chapter, proof that, will, that God will be good for the ultimate day of the Lord, he's going to throw Babylon down in the short term. That's how you know he's going to destroy Babylon in the far term. Okay, so in the same way, the Philistines and the Phoenicians, yes, they're enemies that Judah dealt with, but God was showing through the prophet Joel he would deal with all of the enemies in the future day of the Lord. So I think number one was valid. Number two, we said wasn't valid. That's where the hypothesis was Joel may have been looking forward to a day when the Philistines and Phoenicia took advantage of Judah when the northern armies attacked, specifically in 586 B.C. at the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. But remember, we determined that's not true because Amos chapter 1 is probably, we said, looking back to the problems of the Philistines and the Phoenicians in Joel's day, not looking forward. And because that's true, we said, no, more than likely, number 2 is probably not valid. But we concluded number 3 is valid. Joel mentioned these because they were not world powers. Phoenicia and the Philistines were really never world powers. They were regional powers. They certainly could threaten Judah, but they were never a serious threat, for example, to Greece or to the Assyrians or the Babylonians. They couldn't rival the power of Egypt, for example. Okay, so yes, they may have been 
in the region powers, but they weren't world-dominant powers. Now, I think the reason why they're singled out, though, is they would have served as an example that anyone who mistreats Israel was going to have to be judged for it. So what that says, then, is it doesn't matter how big or how small, you're going to pay the penalty if you come after Israel. So God doesn't care if you're the big Assyrians or the big Babylonians, or perhaps you're just a family or clan or a small nation, if you attack the people of God, he will remember it. And so that's one of the themes that we want to see in Joel chapter 3. Now remember, we left off then by building this case that yes, God chose Israel to be his people. You and I by faith were grafted into the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those promises are still valid. I heard a really good discussion about before we even had Sunday school start that yes, the promises of Israel are still valid but they have not been replaced. Remember we talked about Romans eleven twenty six. all Israel will be saved. And what did we prove? We proved that all Israel has to be national ethnic Israel because two verses later in Romans eleven twenty eight, Paul said they were enemies of the gospel. Well, the church, as Calvin, he, remember Calvin claims Romans eleven twenty six. Israel is just the church, Jew and Gentile. Well, how can you be a believer in the gospel the church, and an enemy of the gospel at the same time in the same relationship. It's impossible. So again, that proves that Romans eleven twenty six is valid. Israel still has a promise. And then we said this. This is the very first promise. Genesis twelve three, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, one of the discussions we had last time is, does this happen in history, or will this wait until the future day of the Lord? Well, what we're saying is we don't have a modern-day apostle or prophet on the scene of history that can determine whether any given storm or national calamity is the wrath of God. So therefore, we have to be content with the future day of the Lord. Yes, Bob, and we need a, we need a mic for you. Uh, that's okay. So um, we have a... I'll talk louder. Okay, good. Uh, um... The, fail, the, the recording failed last week. So yeah, that's why we're doing a little review. Yeah. But one of the things you did last week, I, I have my notes here. Yeah. You were explaining who the Palestinians are. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was very interesting. And we didn't get that on tape. Could you oh, yeah. go over who the Palestinians are, what they have to do with this? Yeah. I think you were covering uh, ethnic cleansing, Joel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Three, six, or seven. Yep. You mentioned. Uh, Black September, kicked out of Jordan, all of that. You- yeah, let me, let me do a little review of that. Um, last week, we had a recording fail after 15 minutes. That's why I'm trying to do a little review to try to get the people up to speed. If all you had was the recording from last week, you'd miss quite a bit. One of the things that we learned here in Joel chapter 3 was that there's always been a history of ethnic cleansing where the nations will try to eliminate Israel as a people. Why? Because it makes God a liar. Okay, God has established Israel and he will forever. So one of the examples I gave is just to see the ethos of the world. I I mentioned how many in here I asked the question had ever heard of Black September, and most of us had of that terrorist organization. Well, Black September became a movement because in September of 1970, there was a coup d'etat by a bunch of Fedayeen fighters. In Jordan Now, Fedayeen are those Muslims who are willing to give up their lives in order to overthrow a government. So these Fedayeen, these Muslim terrorists, try to kill the king of Jordan. 
Well, the king of Jordan and his military won, and they killed a bunch of these Fedayeen, but they also expelled a bunch of them. Well, that's where the Palestinians came from, much, much of them. Okay, so here's the point. The Black September organization, the reason it's called Black September isn't because Israel abused them. It's because the Jordanians abused them. Okay, so why do I mention that? Because two years later in 1972 in the Munich attack, remember the Israeli Olympic athletes are murdered? Who attacked them? Well, Black September did. Okay, well, why aren't they doing it to the Jordanian athletes? The Jordanians kick them out. They're the ones who mistreat them. Let's go attack the Jews. So I'm just showing you that the attacking of the Jews is irrational. But the reason why it's happening is because it's spiritual. Ultimately, Satan incites the nations to violence against them. The other example that Bob mentioned, and thanks for reminding me, I know Bob has talked about this in some radios that we've done. Think about the term Palestine. You'll hear, in fact, if you're on a left-wing campus today, you'll never hear the term Israel. It's always referred to either as the Levant, um, the area, the, the, the Fertile Crescent, or it's referred to as Palestine. The term Palestine itself, in a sense, is an anti-Semitic remark because it is a, th- a thumb in the eye of the Jew. Why? Because Hadrian, the Roman emperor who hated the Jews, he had to deal with the Bar Kokhba revolt in the second century. In 135 AD, after he had put down the revolt, to stick the thumb in the eye of the Jews, he renamed the area of Israel Philistia, which is where we get our term Palestine. So he was renaming, renaming it after the mortal enemy of the Jews, the Philistines. So when you hear the term Palestine, realize it is an anti-Semitic remark in a sense. There is, really, there is no Philistine empire anymore. It was named that by an anti-Semitic Roman emperor and carried forth now by the left-wing Marxists in the campus who hate God and his plans. So that's what this is about. So my point is, when we see in Joel the idea of ethnic cleansing, and it goes all the way through history, what you have to understand is the final battle in Joel 3, that's where it's going to be resolved. That's what Joel wants us to understand. So was that, was that good, Bob? Did we yeah, pretty good? Okay, yeah, I, good. I was just looking at my notes. Yeah, thank you. So I'm sorry, I, we're I trying to cover... Really interesting. A lot of people don't know yeah. why the liberals call them... Yep. Yeah, exactly right. Amen. So, yeah, it's a good... Now, the one passage that Bob and I have... Bob always mentioned we can never wear out a Bible passage, right? No, so, <laughs> right, it's still there. But one that we, we talk about often is Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10. And the reason I want to put this one up is because it shows that Israel is God's precious inheritance. And there's a few facts in here that I just want to talk about. Let's read it. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10. Moses wrote this, he said, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, now remember that happened in Genesis 11, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So let's stop there in verse 8 for just a moment. If you have a New American Standard Bible, instead of saying sons of God, it'll say the sons of Israel. That is not the best rendering, and I use the NASB primarily. But the better reading is, as the ESV has it, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. Okay, now we know that from various sources, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, from the Septuagint, that that's the better reading. Now, why is that significant? Well, because the sons of God is a reference to the divine counsel, the angels, whether good or bad. And so what God is clearly saying here is that all of the nations were given to this divine counsel, and that was the inheritance of the divine counsel. 
So all the nations, think of the, na- the term nations in the Hebrew, goyim, the far off ones. They belong to whom? They belong to the angelic realm, whether good or bad. But notice here now in verse 9, it says, but, we have a contrast, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, again, Israel, is allotted his allotted heritage. Now notice verse 10, it says, he found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. It's a very interesting phrase we'll talk about here in just a moment. So all the nations belong to the angelic realm. They're given to the divine council, but one nation was selected sovereignly, graciously by God to be his own, and that's the nation of Israel. Notice it's not America. Okay, as wonderful as America is, it's not America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, never was either, right? Well said. So, that it's, we don't have a covenant with God, but Israel did. Israel is God's inheritance. Now, what's interesting is throughout history, the problem with the Israelites beginning in the wilderness is they want to become like the nations. In fact, go back to the time of Saul. Why did they get Saul to begin with? Because they wanted a king like all the other nations when, in fact, Yahweh was to be their king. They always wanted to be like the goyim. They wanted their gods. They wanted their culture. And so turn your Bibles, if you will. Let me show you how even Stephen points this out in Acts chapter 7. Turn your Bibles to Acts 7, verses 41 through 43. Acts 7, 41 through 43. Now remember here, this is where Stephen is giving this long rebuke, really, to the Sanhedrin, the leadership of Israel, and he's showing them the irony is they think they're the people of God. They think because they have the covenants, they have the promises, that they're physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they're the people of God. But what he's going to show is because they rejected the Messiah to whom the promises were given, they're in solidarity with those who are the pagans the Israelites who were idolaters who wanted to be under the host of heaven, the divine council from long ago. Listen to what he says. Acts 7, 41 through 43. He says, At that time, this is in the wilderness, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. By the way, stop there for a moment. Notice that phrase, the works of their hands. When every time you see the hands... It's something deficient and sinful of man. Bob had taught us a few weeks ago about Colossians 2. Remember the circumcision without hands? That's the circumcision that God does, the circumcision of the heart. It's not deficient. Why? Because it's not with human hands. It's of God. But this was something that was with their hands. It's deficient. It's sinful. It's pagan. Verse 42, he says, But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. Stop there. The host of heaven, who's that? Notice on the screen, Deuteronomy 32, it's the same thing as the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. So think of the irony. Israel is selected to be God's unique nation, his heritage, but they said, no, we, won't, we don't want that. We'd rather be under the B'nai Elohim, the host of heaven, the sons of God. We'd rather be under the angels than belong to you, O Lord. So listen to this powerful rebuke. It says, as it is written, in the book of the prophets. Now, here's a minor prophet, Amos 5, 25 through 27. He cites, he says, It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? You also took along 
the tabernacle of Molech. Now, stop there for a moment. Who was Molech? Notice M, it, we transliterate it in English, M-O-L-O-C-H. Originally, it was actually Melech. Melech is king in Hebrew. But what the Jews did is they vowel-pointed it with the O. Do you remember the name Mephibosheth? The O means shameful. He was a shameful one. Okay? Remember, because he was Mary Baal before. So the O, Molech, means shameful one. Why? Because this was the Canaanite deity called the king, Melech. But this Canaanite deity demanded that if you wanted to have favor with him, you had to sacrifice your children. So that's where the Israelites ended up sacrificing their children to. So the Israelites volpointed Molech rather than Melech. He's not a king, he's a shameful one. But the, the problem is the Israelites would rather follow him than Yahweh, the good and gracious God. Now, notice also it says, and the star of the god Ramphah. That's the Egyptian Saturn god. They'd rather have Molech that wants you to kill your children or the Egyptian Saturn god. The, image, the images which you made to worship. He says, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. That was the judgment that was being prophesied. So, here's the irony. Israel was selected of all the nations to be the Lord's. But instead, they rejected him and they wanted to be, just like the other nations, the inheritance of the angelic realm, specifically the demonic realm. So what we have then is in Jesus' day, the rejection of Jesus by Israel shows that the Israelites in that generation are in solidarity with all of the Israelites who have rejected the promises of God, except for what? The remnant. So what will happen is God will always keep a remnant, but what happens is when you get to the 70th week of Daniel, that's where God is going to reverse this, where again he will take them from worshiping and serving the angelic realm, the host of heaven, another term, the sons of God, and he will take them again to be his own. So we're living in the time of the Gentiles where they're allowed to go their way. Again, he keeps a remnant. But in the 70th week of Daniel, there will be that reversal. Now, one beautiful thing that I love... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jessica. Bring the mic. Oh, yeah. There we go. Let's see. I noticed I had scribbled in the margin of the verse in Acts, Deuteronomy 4. So I just flipped back and looked yeah. at it. Deuteronomy 4, 19. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole earth. Yes. Or under the whole heaven as a heritage. Verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Great connection. Exactly. Thank you. So did everyone understand? He, he chose them from being the pagans who were serving the host of heaven in the demonic realm. Yeah, Bob. Yes, this is amazing. And the, the, so he chose them out. They wanted to be like the nation. So they go back under the host of heaven. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're not even sad. Just like the nations aren't satisfied with the hosts of heaven. Yeah. Because actually, civil rulers are on the scene. Okay, because we're separated from the angelic realm. Right. But they still worship them. Yeah. And they lust for more. During Daniel's 70th week, the tangibility returns. Yes. What happened 
in Genesis 6, and through the flood, and then the reversal of this tangibility, and in the table of nations, in Daniel's 70th week, they all get what they want. Yeah. They get tangible interaction with the demonic realm or with these fallen beings that they've lusted for since Genesis 6. Israel wants that too. They don't because they want to be like the nation. So Antichrist is the embodiment. Yes. It's like the ultimate false messiah. Yeah. And the exact nature of Antichrist, I don't think, is just an ordinary human. Right. That's my opinion. Yeah. I think there's a su- supernatural element to that. He comes out of the abyss, amen. Yeah, that's right. way yeah. beyond so that's anything. Right. Exactly. And so it's not like some guy gets everybody to believe in him. Yeah. This is a demonic type being that's embodied. Yeah. And so in the end, everybody gets this horrible thing, but it's going to be hell on earth. Yeah, amen. And then in the end, God saves Israel, and they look upon him whom they pierced. That's right. And there's a redemption. Yeah, Bob, I think you're exactly right with the Antichrist. Just as Christ, you have truly man, truly God, you have a false incarnation with the Antichrist. And in Revelation 13, he comes out of the abyss. So where does this happen, this fake incarnation, really when he takes his mortal wound? Remember, there's going to be a pseudo-resurrection, but it's going to deceive the whole world. And so that's where you have no longer just the human uh, man of lawlessness, but he's indwelt, as it were, by Satan himself. You have a demonic hybrid with a man once again. And just like Bob said, you're going back to Genesis 6, where you had the demons and men in, in, you know, in the, the, the bastard race, as it were. I hate to use that term, but that's what they're trying to do is distort the seed of the woman. Okay, so that's going to return in the 70th week of Daniel. So we have to see that, right? Now, one thing I want to point out is notice here how tender and loving God is towards Israel. What does he refer to them as? He refers to them as the apple of his eye. This is beautiful. The term apple here in Hebrew is ishon. Ish is man Own The ending there is a diminutive form. So it literally means the little man. And I believe the, the implication here is it's the pupil of your eye. The ancients, especially in the, in the ancient Near East, would see the pupil as this little man. And, uh, and, and so in the ESV, they're trying to struggle with, well, how do we render that? Well, the apple of your eye. But the significance of the pupil, this Ishon, the little man, the pupil of your eye, can be seen by the fact that if you were in a dust storm or a sandstorm that was fairly prevalent in the ancient Near East, the one thing that you had to protect to survive were your eyes. And they looked at the pupil as the center of the sight. And so the one thing, if you were caught out in the storm, if you were going to make it, you had to protect that eye. The pupil, the apple of the eye, the ishon, had to be protected because if you go blind, you're going to wander, you're going to perish. So it was the most important thing to protect in the sandstorm. In the same way, it is the most precious thing to God and he will protect it. That's part of the imagery. The Israelites are the ishon, of God that he will protect at all cost. So the nations may rage and the nations may try to wipe her out, but God will protect her. That's why they're so precious. Now, let me show you, I'm going to just show you some other prophets where they, in fact, talk about the nations that you have in the book of Joel. And I'm going to just show you that all these nations, not just Babylon, not just Assyria, but the Edomites, the Philistines, Um, the Phoenicians, all of these nations 
are going to be brought down because of their mistreatment of Israel. Let's go to the book of Obadiah. I just want to give you kind of a a sampling of the minor prophets. Obadiah was written in the 6th century, I believe about 16 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, what concerns Obadiah, the prophet, is how the Edomites, remember where did the Edomites come from? Esau, the brother of Jacob. Well, they were lining up with the Babylonians, and as the Babylonians sacked them, the Edomites mocked it, the Edomites took their possessions, the Edomites helped the enemies of Jacob. So you have a brotherly rivalry in a sense. Again, you have Esau hating Jacob and trying to crush him. And so that's what incenses God. So listen to what he says. Obadiah 10 and 11, because of the violence to your brother Jacob, that's Israel, you will be covered with shame. You will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Wow, what an indictment. Now, when did this casting of the lots and this, the foreigners entering their gates, when did that happen? That's 586. Remember, there's three really major attacks that happened to Israel, specifically Judah and Jerusalem. It happened in 605 B.C. You have the first deportation that occurs by the Babylonians. That's when Daniel and his friends are taken off to Babylon. Then you have another attack in 597, And then finally, it's completely destroyed in 586. That's what's angering God, and the Edomites helped. In fact, turn your Bibles to Genesis 27, 41. I want you to see that this animosity between Esau and the people of Israel goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau. The Edomites and the Israelites were enemies, and they shouldn't have been. Genesis 27, 41. By the way, as you turn there, this is in some sense almost like a parallel of Cain and Abel. If Cain would have done what was right, he also would have had a relationship with Yahweh. If Esau would do what was right, he also would be grafted into the promises of Israel, just as any Gentile would be. But there was a hatred. Notice Genesis twenty-seven forty-one. It says, So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob, because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. This never leaves from the Edomites. So remember, Edom, Edom in Hebrew means red. Why is it called red? Because they lived in the land that looks red. They live in the land that looks red, but Esau himself was called red. That's what his name was. He sold God out. Remember, he... Instead of being a priest before God, having the birthright, he sells his birthright for a bowl of beans, lentil soup that looks red. So there's this play on red. The red one sells his birthright for red stew. He lives in the land that looks red, and he has nothing but blood on his mind for his brother. That's going to be turned on his head. Yes, Rich. Uh, Yes. um, Let's see now. Esau. But even if Esau did good, I mean, before the twins were born, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So how can that be that if he did right, that he would find favor in the eyes of God? Absolutely. Good question, Rich. Just like any other pagan today, think of them. Anyone, Jesus says, all the, who come unto me, I will by no wise cast out. John 19. Now, they will not come unto him unless they're the elect. Are you with me? 
Esau is commanded and has the opportunity to come to the promises of God, but he doesn't. Now, he's not the elect and he won't, but the elect ensures that God enables you to believe. That's the point. Left to our own devices, no human being would believe. No human being would obey. So there in Romans 9, we see ultimately why Esau will never believe. He's not one of God's chosen. But it's the, the culpability is on him, right. right? So think of James. Remember in James, is it one? Maybe somebody could look this up. 114, 113, right in there. Uh, James says, let no one say when they're being tempted that they're being tempted by the Lord. For neither does he tempt anyone with evil, but people are led by their own evil lusts and led away by their own desires. So the point is, our sinfulness, our rebellion, isn't God's fault. We can't say, well, you didn't make me one of the elect. Okay? That, that's the point. It's, it's us. We have a hatred of the gospel. So the point is, Esau is culpable for his hatred of God and his promises. Yes, he's not the elect, and we know only those that God regenerates will be enabled to believe. But it's their own hard heart that they're culpable for. Okay, and there's no contradiction between that. Our rebellion is our fault. God, the salvation that we have is God's fault. So whose fault is it that we rebel and sin? Mine. Whose fault is it, if anyone's, that I become saved? That's only God. <laughs> so that's the way it is, right? Um, think of your child when you, uh, they goof something up really bad. They absolutely, you ask them to do something, and it just com- turns into a flaming disaster. And the only thing they contribute to it is chaos and misery, right? <laughs> right? And I, I say that lovingly. They're doing their best. But you have to come in and do everything for them, right? You just kind of have to fix it. Whatever it may be, you ask them to get... I remember I was working with my boy, and I love him, but you ask him to go get a wrench or a socket, and then he goes into the garage, and all of a sudden you can hear a bunch of banging around, and the sockets are all over, and the tools are laying, and he just spills it all and comes with the wrong one, and you have to kind of save the day. We're like that child. All we bring is just a disaster. God has to fix it. And I know that maybe it's a simple uh, analogy, but it's kind of the way it is, isn't it? Right? So I think that's the way we should think of it. Again, Cain would not have been one of the elect, but God could still say to him, hey, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? So, yeah, that's the idea. Just to piggyback on that. Point. Just to piggyback, years ago, before I understood the gospel, yeah. um, my brother made a comment, and he didn't understand the gospel either. He said if Hitler on his deathbed would have just cried out to the Lord, he could be saved. But when you read Proverbs chapter 1, Jesus says, or God says, I called to them, I reached out to them, I reached out, and they rejected, and they rejected, and they rejected. So even when they call unto me in their fear, in their um, trench, or in their foxhole, you know, I'm not going to hear them. I'm not going to respond to them. I'm going to reject them, even if they do cry unto me, because they rejected me. And of course, it comes down to God's personal choices elect. I get that. But uh, I just yeah. find that interesting how before I understood the gospel, I really believe that. I believe that anybody, you know, could call in the name of the Lord. And, and in essence, they can. But it's God, obviously, who has the final choice in that, in the say, the elect. Right. So um, an analogy I'm thinking of is, comes from John, John 4. Remember the woman at the well? Jesus says, unless you worship in spirit and truth, right? It's spirit and truth. So the point is, someone, if they call upon the Lord and it's a disingenuous call. It's not genuine faith. Um, Yeah, God will not hear it, but it really is a genuine 
call. The universal call is genuine. Anyone can come to the Lord. But what we have to affirm is that the only way anyone can is if God regenerates. Now, we don't know who the elect are, and we don't know who God regenerates. So that's between them and God. But So my point is, I would just leave it open. Say, yeah, anyone could repent to their dying last. Think about the criminal on the cross. Okay? Uh, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. He had genuine, a genuine conversion, right? So what I think we have to just simply say is, yes, no human being can be saved apart from regeneration, apart from God's effectual calling, but we don't know who that occurs for, right? So there's a genuine uh, call for everyone to repent and believe, and that never goes away until the moment they, they die. And that's why Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed once for a man to die. After that comes judgment. So after you breathe your last, that's when there's no opportunity left. Yeah, Bob. I've been thinking lately because this conversation comes up with some of our CAC little flock out there to, yeah. to contact us. Yeah. I've been thinking about Simon the sorcerer oh, yeah. who apparently repented and was baptized. And then he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. Remember that? That was in Acts 8. Yeah. Um, and that starts with verse 18. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power too, so that anyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought the gift of God could be obtained with money. You have no part nor share. Uh, lot, I think, is kleros. It means inheritance. Yeah. So it means, you know, this isn't real, your, wow. your faith. You have no part nor share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Right. Okay. So there was somebody, Rich, who seemed to want right. to come along, and he was even baptized. Yeah. But then Peter saying, saying, no, you don't have any part of this. Uh, then, but then that wasn't the end. I just was looking at this, verse 22. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven. So Peter didn't give up on him. Hmm. Okay. And um, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Wow. Verse 24, please pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. He was saying, well, but do you, do you see he still hadn't really repented? Right. Yeah. He wow. said, he's saying, well, I don't want the consequences. Yeah. Wow. I don't really want to serve God, but you're a holy man. You pray for me. Yeah, amen. You know, a lot of people think that way. Some bishop or some holy man may have some pull with the big guy. Have you ever heard him say that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, you pray for me. Then. But see, Simon really didn't turn to God, but Peter was still calling for him to repent at the end. That's right. Well said. I always use the thief on the cross as sort of a reference. And, you know, what, what happened to him? Because he was one of the revilers early on, and then yeah. um, and then he, you know, was uh, granted repentance, and Amen. so uh, he was at the point of death also. Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah, that's right, and, he, and Jesus affirms that he was going to be, he belonged to him. Amen. Yeah, yeah. and one more yeah. thing, and along with what Bob was saying, is that a lot of people go to the big guy, will you pray for me? And I think that that's what the Catholics do, yeah. because they, <laughs> they worship Mary, 
and oh, and, sure. and John MacArthur's talked about this. They said, "Who can resist his mother?" So if we can just appeal to the mother, she's much more approachable than a man is because mm. a mother is more kind and more gentle. So just appeal to the mother, and then she'll talk Jesus into letting you come into heaven. Yeah, yeah, well said. Yeah, the, the point being is conversion has to be genuine, doesn't it? And genuine faith, genuine repentance, and God knows the heart. We can't fool him, and uh, he's the heart knower. One of the passages that came to my mind is, remember in Second Peter, towards the end, it talks about, the pig going back to the slop and the dog going back to its vomit. And the point is, it's, we have sometimes phenomenological language. Um, how many here ever hear the weatherman say, tomorrow the sunrise is going to be at 6.42 a.m.? Do you ever call him and say, hey, what are you, some geocentrist? Do you think everything revolves around the earth? Don't you know that the earth is actually rotating? Well, you don't because he's using phenomenological language. It appears that way, right? The sun is rising. And we, don't, we, we know that he knows that the earth is rotating. So here's the point. Sometimes, like in Bob's example with Simon the Sorcerer, it, it appeared phenomenologically as if he was a believer. But in reality, and God alone knows the heart, he had no faith, genuine faith and repentance in the Lord. And yet, Bob rightly pointed out, there's still hope for him. Peter wanted him to genuinely repent and believe. So that's the point is sometimes we don't know who the elect are. We just don't know. So we, we preach the universal call, anyone can come. And God has to, we, the one thing we know is if anyone does come, it's because God regenerated their heart. He effectually called them and enabled them to do so. So we have to hold on to both things. Yep. Amen. Um, so Obadiah, 570, written again 16 years after the attack. The Edomites are attacking Israel. And God says, I'm going to throw you down. I'm going to judge you because of what you did. Now, what's interesting is the destruction of the Edomites really happened in, in three waves. First, in the 6th century, what you have is the Nabataeans end up crushing the Edomites. Now, how many here, if you went to Israel, were ever in Petra? The Williams were, and uh, anyone else there? And yes, Beth was there. Many of you that were in Petra, that was the old Nabataean kingdom. Well, what happens is the Nabataeans sack the Edomites, and some of them are taking the Edomites into this Arab Nabataean race, but the vast majority of the Edomites are expelled to a place called Idumea. Now, Idumea is actually the Greek term for southern Judah, and they end up becoming another nation, the Idumeans. So, why am I bringing all this up? Well, long story short, you go to the Maccabean era, the Maccabeans make the Idumeans submit to the law of Moses. The Idumeans become somewhat cozy with the Romans. Well, lo and behold, there's a man that comes from Idumea, and his name is Herod. And Herod ends up being put in charge of Judea. So when Jesus is born, who wants to wipe out the seed of Jacob, an Idumean, which is a descendant of Edom, which is a descendant of Esau, so you have Jesus, the seed of Jacob, trying to be wiped out by Herod, the seed of Esau. And what you're led to believe is the king, the ultimate king, isn't Herod who has the power, the swords, the, the archers, the army, the descendant of Esau. But the one who really has the power is the little baby boy, the descendant of Jacob. Isn't that beautiful? So then think about it. Where does Jacob go to be protected? He goes down to Egypt, and he comes up out of Egypt just like Israel did. So he follows that same, the same 
the same routine, as it were, pattern as Israel. Think about the pattern that Jesus has. Jesus is baptized, and as soon as he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He succeeds. Israel is baptized, according to Paul, through the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10. They go to the wilderness for 40 years. Israel is the unfaithful son, the son that God called them. To, remember, he called them to be his son. But Jesus is the faithful son they, they never were. So the only way that you can be connected to the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is through Jesus, the faithful son. So that's what the Israelites missed. That's why God keeps handing them over to the host of heaven. But still, what you have to see in Joel and Obadiah is God is going to take into account those who have abused them. Okay? It's like Judas. Judas was predestined to be the man of perdition, but woe, to be, woe be to him who sold out the Son of Man, right? In the same way, yes, God has ordained what's going to occur, but woe to those nations who attack his people, Israel. That's what we're seeing. All right. Now, let me show you another minor prophet, Zephaniah. This is Zephaniah 2, verse 4. And again, I just want you to see that these Philistines, God never forgot what they did. This is in the 7th century, around 640 B.C. Zephaniah 2, 4. For Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon and Ekron will be uprooted. All these cities here are the major cities of the Philistine Empire. Uh, think about today, Gaza still exists. Gaza still exists even to our day. And so how many times do you pull on the news and you'll see a bunch of rockets being launched? Where are they being launched from? The Gaza Strip, right? So in a sense, the nations are still, again, trying to wipe out Israel. Let me show you another one. Here's Zechariah. Zechariah 9. Now, so I'm just going through kind of in order the minor prophets. Now we're in the 6th century. We're at 520 B.C. And Zechariah still hasn't forgotten the Lord still hasn't forgotten what the Philistines have done to the Israelites all those years earlier. Zechariah 9, 5 through 7, it says, Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in great pain. Also, Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza. Again, all this is in Philistia. And Ashkelon, excuse me, Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel, mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Akron like a Jebusite. Wow, there's a lot in here. Let's unpack this a little bit. So Ashdod and all these other cities of the Philistines, they're going to be thrown down. When does that occur? It happens in history at the hands of Alexander the Great in 332 B.C. God, because the Philistines had mistreated Israel, he ends up destroying them. And it happens just as Zechariah prophesies. But what's very interesting is notice here, it talks specifically about these cities like Gaza and Ashdod, and that one day Ashdod is going to also be a remnant for our God. So they're not going to just be destroyed, but one day salvation is going to go to them. In other words, there's going to be such absolute victory by God. He doesn't just wipe them out. He subjugates them and brings them in to be part of the people of God. And you see a partial fulfillment of that in Acts chapter 8. Do you remember when Philip is in Samaria and he's preaching and the people of Samaria repent? 
Well, there's a scene, in, it's around Acts 8.40, where he's brought to the road that goes to Gaza. Okay, and there you have people from that area that end up repenting. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts 8.40. Um, can somebody read, though, Acts 8.24 through 25? I put that in my notes. I, don't, I didn't write the verses down, though. Could somebody read Acts 8.24 through 25? I just want to set the scene. I want you to see that salvation, just as it said in Zechariah 9, starts coming to the Philistines at Acts, the first century. Yeah, Acts, Acts 8, 24 through 25. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. That was it, huh? <laughs> oh, 26 goes to Gaza. Oh, I'm sorry. 26. 26. Can you keep reading, Rich? <laughs> that was kind of anticlimactic. We never even got to Gaza. <laughs> sorry about that. I didn't write enough verses down. Yeah, you got me a little scared there for a yeah. second, saying, well, am I in the right book here? Yeah, right. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Wow. Okay, so now he's on the way to Gaza. Now, everyone, look at Acts 8.40. Acts 8.40, it says, But Philip found himself at Azotus. And by the way, just stop there. Azotus is the Roman name for Ashdod. Okay, so notice on the screen, Ashdod and these other Philistine cities, they're going to be, become a remnant of, the, of God. They're going to be brought in. So now in Acts, you see this being fulfilled. Why? Because remember the programmatic verse of Acts, Acts 1.8? You're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and what? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So now salvation's even going to the Philistines, those rascals who were the enemies of old. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't to be destroyed. Many of them were, but there's going to be a remnant that was going to be saved, just as it says in this text. Isn't that beautiful? So Zechariah is being literally fulfilled. Now, by the way, turn your Bibles ahead. I want you to see that ultimately this is going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. We are going to have all the old pagan nations, they're going to be subjugated and brought in, and many of them will become believers with the Lord. So we're going to read some other verses, but one thing I want to clarify before we read the next verses in Zechariah, then we'll close. Notice it says Ekron will become like a Jebusite. What in the world does that mean? Ekron, again, was one of the cities of Philistia. Well, the Jebusites, if you remember, that's the tribe or the the nation, as it were, that David took over when he got Jerusalem back around 1000 B.C. Well, if you remember what happens, if you read First and Second Samuel, the Jebusites, they were in fact not just destroyed, but they became absorbed into the people of God. And so what Zechariah is saying is in, in like manner, many of these old enemies are going to be brought into the kingdom. And ultimately, that's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. Now, how do we know that? Well, let's read the next verses in Zechariah 9, 5 through, we're going to, I'm sorry, Zechariah 9, we're going to read 8 through 10, what happens right after this. Because I want you to see the near and the far again. What happens, the destruction happens certainly in 332 B.C., but also foreshadows the future millennial kingdom. So you see this near and the far, just like you're seeing in Joel. Notice here, let me read Zechariah 9, 8 through 10. He says, but I will camp around my house. By the way, my house there, if anyone sees Zechariah 
My house is Israel. Sometimes it's a reference to the temple, but just as, just as it happens in Jeremiah twelve seven, my house here is a reference to Israel. He says, I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore. For now I have seen with my eyes, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humbled and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the full of a donkey. Stop there. Where do you see that in the New Testament? At Jesus' triumphal entry, first advent. Why does Jesus come riding in on a donkey? Because he comes the first time to bring peace. Just as Solomon, if you read in 1 Kings 1, he rode on David's donkey because it was a peaceful time. The Messiah, who was the ultimate son, the son that even Solomon never could be, he's the ultimate Davidic son. He comes riding into Jerusalem. He's on the donkey. He comes to bring them peace, but they won't have it. And he says, even if you'd known the things that bring for your peace, right? But now they've been hidden from your eyes. Jesus comes a second time, what? On a horse, the white horse in Revelation 19. First time he brings peace. Second time he he comes to bring war. Okay, so here's what I want you to see. Notice right after... Verse 9, you have the second advent. And this is verse 10. Zechariah 9, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. Who is he? What's well, the Messiah? And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Dear ones, what I want you to see is that all the way through the prophets, you have a near and a far. All the way from Joel, 9th century to Obadiah, 6th century, to Zechariah, 5th century. And they're all saying God is not going to hold guiltless those who attacked Israel. But that one day God was going to rectify it. He's going to throw the enemies down. And yet there's going to be a remnant, even of the pagans, he's going to bring in to the fold. All the way through the minor prophets. Dear ones, the book of Joel in Joel chapter 3 is talking about those same things. That God will judge all those who attack Israel and he will bring an end of ethnic cleansing, of a day when you turn on the news and rockets are flying from Gaza, or there's another attack at a Sabaro pizza where you have Jews being injured. It won't happen anymore. When the Messiah reigns, his people really will dwell in security. Okay? Now, we only have 10 minutes now. I do have another PowerPoint because we were kind of between the two. So I'll put that up. But if anybody has comments, questions, feel free. I'll move on, though. I'll pull this next one up. We're just going to keep moving on into how God invites the nations here to battle. We're going to just go through 9 through 12. And I think we have time. I want to show you something very interesting as we get into this section. We start, we'll start focusing more and more on the battle as we proceed. But I want you to see this invitation as God arouses the nations. What you want to see here is a deep sarcasm as we continue in Joel 3, 9. Notice what he says. The Lord says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Now, why is there deep sarcasm there? Because he's inviting them to something they're going to completely be trounced in. They're going to completely fail. They're going to be completely obliterated by the Holy One of Israel. And it's this dripping sarcasm. Yeah, why don't you bring your best effort? Why don't you bring your mighty man? 
Now, what we have to see here is a contrast with Joel 2, because remember in Joel 2, it was all about the enemies of the north, the Assyrians. That would be in 722 B.C., they wiped out the northern kingdom. And the Babylonians that wiped out Jerusalem in 586, they would be successful. Okay, so that's why I'm saying Joel chapter 2 and Joel chapter 3 can't be about the same thing. What's being described in Joel chapter 3 is not going to be effective. But notice Joel 2, 7, the northern army, they run like many men, mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers and they, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. And if you read all of that, there's nothing that can stop them. They're going to be successful. Well, not so with the army that comes in Joel chapter 3. So why do so many scholars say, well, it's the same army, the same battle? No. Joel chapter 2 already happened in history. That was the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Joel chapter 3 is about the final battle that's still in our future. That's the idea. So the enemies of God here are being aroused by God for a battle that they can't possibly win. And the reason why that's good news for us is we see, even I think this past week, you see evil, lying, deceit. It's hard, isn't it? it? It's really difficult to take where you see the innocent hurt and the evildoers prosper. But when you read Joel chapter 3, it comes to an end. That's what we see. That there's a day that the enemy doesn't succeed. My wife and I have been watching a a show. It's all about these British islands that were taken over in World War II. One of the islands is called Guernsey. It's one of the Channel Islands. And the, the name of the series, it's called Enemy at the Door. And it's all about how life was. And these poor people just wanted to live their lives. And all of a sudden, you got a bunch of Nazis. And they're just doing evil things. And they wanted to live their lives and just worship God. Many of them were believers on the island. And all of a sudden, you've got a bunch of Nazis, a bunch of pagans who return God to nature, as Bob has been showing us. And they just succeed for a while. And the the question is, well, how does God allow that? The answer is in Joel 3. It will be thrown down one day where the hatred of the nations toward God and his people, it'll be rectified. Let me try to see if I can get into this next slide. Notice here, God challenges a duel. I love this. Notice Joel 3.10. Beat your plowshares into swords and your, prunes, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. <laughs> this last phrase, I love this. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. My brother had a saying, he and I used to lift weights years ago, and he said, anyone can be a muscle man if you wear small enough of a T-shirt. <laughs> that was a saying that we had to razz each other. Hey, anyone can be a muscle man if you wear small enough of a T-shirt. <laughs> but this is what God is saying is you're not a mighty man. He's, he's mocking them. But here's the question. What's interesting is notice the language. Beat your plowshares into swords, pruning hooks into spears. Isn't it interesting that that is the opposite of what it says in Isaiah 2.4? Notice in Isaiah 2.4, It talks about the Messiah in the millennial kingdom. It says, He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Notice it's the opposite. So here's the question, which came first? Is Joel borrowing from Isaiah, or is Isaiah borrowing from Joel? Now, remember, I've gone to great lengths to labor that Joel, I believe, the evidence is clear that it was written in the ninth century. Why is that important? Because it shows us that Isaiah must be borrowing from Joel. 
Isaiah is playing off of Joel. Now, why is that more likely as well, which further corroborates that Joel must have been written earlier? The reason why is more than likely this saying, beat your plowshares into swords and pruning hooks into spears. It was probably an idiomatic or proverbial saying in Israel that really functioned as an agrarian society. And when they would see enemies on the horizon, they would literally have to do that. And so it became a saying in their culture that when they had to get ready for battle, hey, you better get your plowshares beat into swords and your, and your pruning hooks into spears. It became like a proverbial statement. How many in here, um, how many in here I'll get right to you uh, too, Eric. How many in here remember from World War II, there used to be those posters that were for bonds. Uncle Sam wants you. Anybody remember those? Tom, you probably maybe had maybe some of those at your recruiting office some years ago. Um, do you remember there was one I had as a kid? I loved airplanes when I was a kid. And there was one where it was a fighter pilot, American fighter pilot. And he says, you buy them, we'll fly them. Okay? Those are proverbial statements of our age in the 1940s that was just, we had to be ready for war. In the same way, the Israelite farmer had, this was a saying, Everyone knew it. Beat your plowshares into swords and your, your pruning hooks into spears. It was proverbial. And you, so, so do you see then when you get to Isaiah, when the Messiah comes, what a shock it is that that's going to be reversed? And how is it going to be reversed? Because they're just going to try harder. They're going to beat up their enemies better. They're going to get a better military. No, it's the Prince of Peace who comes that's talked about in Isaiah 9. Who is not only a son, to, remember, unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born, and what he's called, he's called Mighty God. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The God man's going to come. So that's when that all happens. I'm sorry, Eric, go ahead. Yeah, I, uh, I wanted to mention this uh, on the plowshares into swords. I have a friend who lives in England, yeah. and he is a really quite a liberal guy. I've known him for many years. He's kind of a creative, artistic, one of that type. Nice guy, too. But uh, we've talked over the years, you know, there's a lot of things going on with Islam in England. And again, I've known this guy for a decade, at least. And uh, he sent me a book a couple years ago. You know, he's a Christian. Uh, At least he claims to be a Christian. And in this book... Uh, and I can't remember the author. I could hardly stand to read it. I started reading it, and I just had to put it down. It was too revolting. But one of the things that this pastor says is that, you know, there are many conservatives, you know, who, are, who can't seem to, to, uh, to, they can't seem to hammer their swords into plowshares. In other words, he, he's using biblical terminology there to kind of shame people who, who understand that there is some conflict in the world, yeah. you know, and right. that we just don't get it. And, right. and it's just a... Very just a, good point. It's a great example of how with the liberal church, yes. they're doing so much damage. It's just, it's just horrible. And uh, I, like I say, I, there was so much deception and, you know, uh, er- erroneous precept built upon er- erroneous, you know, Erroneous yeah. precepts stacked one upon another right. that I didn't even know where to begin right. to, to answer this friend of mine. And so I just, I haven't even been able to. Just too much deception. So Eric, let's look at the screen here on Isaiah 2.4. What that man's claiming is we do this. That we beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into printing hooks. We build the kingdom. It's, it's post-millennialism on steroids, right? Yeah. And, and this yeah. is what Bob has been yeah, railing. And, and, and Jessica, you've seen this. So 
let's take this and say, wait a minute, that's something that the Messiah does. Exactly. Right? And what do we know from other scriptures? The institution of human government, Genesis 9-6, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. You see that reiterated, Romans 13-4, the government does not bear the sword in vain, meaning they can use it. So you're absolutely right. We need government. We need them to restrain evil using the military, using the police. But when the Messiah comes, then it won't be necessary because he's on the scene of history. Yeah, Jessica. So Dad and I have been talking a lot about um, the growth of the post-mill position right now yes. and the Doug Wilson, Jeff Durbin, kind of that whole crowd. Yep. And what they always say is this is an eschatology of hope. And Dad always says, well, how do you have a kingdom without a king? And I'm right. reading these verses and I'm thinking to myself, how would it be an eschatology of hope if this is what we have to do, and in the end we have a kingdom without a king. Right. That's not, no, this is the eschatology of hope. They right. have an eschatology of work. Exactly. And Jessica, let me play off of that. You're exactly right. When we read the swords will be beat into plowshares, spears into printing hooks, if we're to do that, why does Jesus say in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, that unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive? It doesn't sound too optimistic what we're going to accomplish as human beings. It's going to be so bad. What you and I as humans are able to accomplish is so bad that if it were not cut short, nobody would survive. Does that sound like we're going to be the ones who beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into printing? I don't think so. That's why Jesus has to return. So, well said, amillennial or postmillennialism in this instance really has no merit. And, you know, it's funny, the thought was in history that the First and Second World Wars would have really tamped down, excuse me, that theology because it shows the bleakness of man, but it always comes back because people love human ability, don't they? So, yeah, amen. Yeah, amen. Well, well, we're out of time. Let's let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, we we have heavy souls today, and we um, we have concerns and worries for our our country. We do pray, Lord, that we would be preserved. That you and I, as people, the people of God, that you would help us, Lord, persevere. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would. Enable us to know that this great and glorious kingdom will come. That one day the swords will be beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks and the nations will no longer learn war. Heavenly Father, we pray that that day would come quickly. We pray that you would send your son from heaven and that he would rescue us from the wrath to come. And we thank you for these promises. I pray that you would edify my brothers and sisters, that you would enable them to persevere and that you would keep us to be about your gospel, keep the gospel upon our lips, give us opportunity this week. I pray for Bob as he gives a very important message today about spiritual warfare. Give us ears to hear, help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. And also I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone who has a different understanding of spiritual warfare today, they would hear this message online, or perhaps they're here today, and they would be convicted and changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.